To frame our thoughts this evening, we will be considering Matthew's gospel in chapter 1. I'll be reading from verse 1 and verse 17. I'll spare you some of the finer details of all the names because this is the family tree of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Father, this evening as we gather, we ask for your spirit to illumine our hearts, that you give us light in the midst of our own darkness, and that we see Jesus. And so we ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In 1976, Alex Haley published his novel, Roots, the Saga of an American Family. The novel is a historical fiction telling the story of Kunta Kinte, an African enslaved in Gambia and transported to, to the United States. Haley traces Kinte's family history through seven successive generations here in America. Roots was an instant success. It sat at the top of the New York Times bestseller list for over 22 weeks. And then later in 1977, as some of you may remember, the book was adapted into a television series, which turned into a national media event. Over 80 million viewers watched Roots. Out of this sensation, there was one very unexpected outcome. Honor Sock, who's a historian at Colorado University, notes this unexpected outcome, writing that Haley's work generated an explosion of interest across racial and across ethnic lines, but this explosion of interest was not so much about the particular story of Roots, but it was about ancestry and family research in the 1970s. It all became a cottage industry, in fact. By the mid-1980s, interest in family research had died off a little bit, but then it was, has been revived in the last decade or so. And now, armed with internet archives, armed with powerful search engines and widely available DNA testing, the ancestry and family research business is alive and well today. Millions of Americans have freshly devoted themselves to these studies, prying into their past, attempting to know who they are and where they have come from. This genealogical interest is, of course, not really that new. It's new to us, but on the stage of world history, it's been a very common thing. In the ancient world, genealogies were used to tell stories because they were never merely historical records. That is, they weren't just telling you who your ancestors were, but rather they were used to tell a story about an individual's identity, about our role, and about our destiny. And this is exactly what we find in Matthew chapter 1. 
It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ that reveals far more than simply information about Jesus' family tree. As Matthew opens his gospel, the angel comes to Joseph and instructs him that he is to name his unborn son Jesus. And then the angel provides some commentary as to why he is to give him that name. He explains that the name is to be given because he will save his people from their sins. And so his name explicates his mission because he comes to bring salvation. He is to have this name. But what we're not provided here at this point in Matthew's gospel is we're not provided information about how he is going to accomplish that salvation. It's left undetailed. And this is where it's important for us to consider once again the genealogy, where we're giving all kinds of information about who Jesus is. Last week we discussed that this genealogy has a repeated pattern. 42 different generations are given to us, and the pattern that is used is X was the father of Y. This is the conventional form of a genealogy in the ancient world and also in our world today. But we also saw that there's a few exceptions to that pattern in the genealogy, and that these exceptions are designed to grab our attention. They're designed to arrest us and to pull us into explore their meaning further. And this evening, we will look at two exceptions in verse 2 and also in verse 11 that fill out how Jesus will be the one who will save us from our sins. In verse 2, we read these words, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. And this is the break in the pattern, the addition of and his brothers. And then in verse 11, once again we read, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And so the pattern breaks with the words and his brothers added twice. And it's curious, and we have to ask the question, why was this added Why were the words, and his brothers, added? It's even more curious when you consider the two people that these words are connected to, Judah and Jeconiah. They are not exactly the most savory characters that you can find in all of the Bible. Judah we first encounter in Genesis 37. And Judah is the fourth son of Jacob. And in verses 26 and 27... We learn there that Jacob conspired, he plotted against his younger brother Joseph. And they were going to leave him in a pit and leave him for dead. This was their plan because they were jealous of their brother Joseph. But under Judah's advice, it was then decided that they would sell Joseph off. That they would actually turn a profit from this. And then they would take his robe, that they would dip it in blood... And they would take that robe back to their father and tell him that he had been slaughtered by a wild animal. Judah is a man of malice, he's a man of greed, and he's a man of deceit. Not a savory character. And then we don't see much improvement when it comes to Jeconiah. If you were to follow into 2 Kings 24, you see Jeconiah's reign there. 
And we are told simply that Jeconiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Both men, both men are of dubious character, but then yet both men have something in common. Because you see, in Genesis 44, the story of Judah continues to unfold. In a famine in Israel, Judah and his brothers went down into Egypt. The brother they had sold, Joseph, had risen to prominence and power, and they did not recognize him. And they go to Joseph for bread. One of Judah's brothers, in fact, the youngest brother, Benjamin, was accused of stealing a cup from Joseph. And so, jo so Joseph arrested him. He takes Benjamin into his home and claims that he will be his servant and must remain there in Egypt. And Judah then goes to Joseph, the very man who had betrayed this same brother years before, and says, my father will not be able to tolerate this loss. And he offers himself, he offers himself to be Joseph's servant in place of his younger brother. It's a remarkable and arresting moment where this man, Judah, who is so selfish and full of himself in all the chapters ahead, suddenly sacrifices himself. He gives himself for his younger brother and to spare his father a pain. In verse 33, Judah says these words, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. It is an amazing moment, a transformation of an indulgent man in which he makes a sacrifice. And then we find the same thing happening in this dubious character of Jeconiah, a man who did evil in the sight of God. King Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem, lays siege to it. And then what we're told in 2 Kings 24 is that Jeconiah offers himself to be taken into captivity instead of all of the city being destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's armies. And the logic of the moment is take me, not them. Take me into captivity and do not destroy the nation. And friends, this is the story being told through these two very dubious characters, Judah and Jeconiah, is they're telling a story, it's a sketch of the one who was coming. The one who in this family line brings all of the family tree to fulfillment. Because it speaks of one who comes to save by sacrificing himself. One who comes to save by offering himself in our place. He comes to die in our place. He comes to give salvation at his own expense. This is how, this is the means that salvation comes to us. You see, Jesus doesn't come to save by just providing us a good example that we can emulate and then somehow clean ourselves up to climb up into heaven and to gain God's approval. You see, he doesn't come to save us by teaching us good spiritual techniques and some prayer tactics that we can use in order to have a healthy relationship with God. That's not how he comes to save and he doesn't come to save us by teaching us rules to follow in which we can gain brownie points with God. That's not how he comes to save. No, he comes to save by dying. 
the one righteous man, against whom there was no sin that could be counted, the one who was rich beyond all splendor, became poor on our behalf. That is, he became identified with our sins and he died in our place. And he does so to cancel out the record of our sins. This is the story of the genealogy. It's the story of Judah and Jeconiah offering themselves in place of their brothers. And this is what Jesus does for you, his brothers and his sisters. And this night we remember his coming into the world, a weak and helpless baby who comes to grow in all righteousness, to serve God and to love him, and to offer himself in our place. This is what Jesus does for you, his family, his brothers, his sisters. Let's offer him thanks. Father, this evening, as we remember all the events of our Lord Jesus and his coming into the world, we are most reminded and we are most thankful for his coming on our behalf, that he comes to make sacrifice for us, to die for us. And in dying for us, he reconciles us to you, canceling out the weight and the burden of our sins. And so fill our hearts with joy and thanksgiving at this great mystery. And of all that this genealogy reveals to us about him, may we be lost in the wonder of that this Christmas. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.